dinosaurs walking across the earth. It's, it's meant to provoke a sense of awe and wonder at what's happening. And it really helps carry along the story, bear some of the emotional weight of the story, too. And just as there's a melodic line in the Jurassic Park movies, there's a melodic line in the book of Genesis. So to understand and see this melodic line, see what God wants from us, we need to look at the original context of Genesis. So Moses uh, wrote the book of Genesis. He wrote Genesis for Israel while they were wandering in the desert, thousands of years before Christ. God had saved Israel out of slavery in Egypt and led them through the Red Sea. They were wandering in the desert for about 40 years. And during this time, we know that it was hard. It's hard to live in the desert. It's hard to eat the same thing every day even though it's a miraculous provision from God. And it's hard to know what God is doing when life doesn't look the way that he wanted to. Israel was tempted to worship other gods, and even when they entered the promised land, they were tempted to worship the false gods of the Canaanites. So, during this time of discouragement and tiredness, the message of Genesis was meant to encourage Israel to trust in God during a really rough season. In this message today, I'm going to walk through the three major chunks as I see it in the book of Genesis. Chapters 1 through 3, chapters 4 through 11, and then 12 through 50 before we apply the passage to us today. And I've got three simple goals for this message. One of them is that you would desire to read the book of Genesis this week on your own. Uh, second goal I have is that you would love the Bible story more. Genesis really launches the Bible story, really launches the gospel story, continues through the Old Testament, through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, and all the way into Revelation. My third goal is that you have the theme song of Genesis stuck in your heads and your hearts for life. So let's turn to Genesis 1 and see how the story starts. First part of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 3 teaches that sin brought curse into God's good and blessed world. Genesis opens describing creation with a pattern that happens during the days of creation. First, God speaks a part of creation into existence, says, let there be light, does that for darkness, the earth, the sea, stars, moon, plants, sea creatures, and animals. God creates them. Uh, then the pattern continues and says, and it was so. Which means God's spoken word was effective to achieve his purposes. And lastly, God evaluates his creation each day. And it says in Genesis chapter 1, And God saw that it was good. The first five days of creation stick pretty close to this pattern, but day six builds upon this pattern. After pronouncing the creation of God's animals good in chapter 1 verse 25, 1 verse 26 and following describe the creation of man. In God's image. And being made in God's image uh, means that man is different from the rest of creation. We're different than trees and birds and dogs and other animals. We have more value, dignity, capacity, and responsibility on earth. God gave man dominion over his creation to rule over it. God gave man the commission to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth with other image bearers who would reflect God's glory and walk in intimate relationship. After the creation of man in day six, God evaluates his creation 
doesn't, he doesn't just say that it was good. If you look at verse 31, chapter 1 with me, God says it was very good. Humankind made in God's image is the pinnacle of God's creation. God then blesses mankind, and on the seventh day he rested from his work. Then chapter 2 zooms in on the creation of man and tells us that the Lord God made man from the dust. God made uh, Eve, God gave uh, a, a wife to Adam. God also gave man and woman one command, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Unfortunately, the paradise described in Genesis 1 and 2 doesn't last long, because in Genesis 3, the man and woman listened to the voice of the serpent, they disobeyed God's only command, and in doing so they rebelled against their creator. Their sin is flagrant rebellion against the God who created them, the God who gave them so much. And their rebellion brings the curse of sin into the world, something that impacts us each day. Since our God is a just and holy God, He has to punish sinners. And He doles out punishment in Genesis 3, 14 through 19. And because of sin, so many of the beautiful things God had done in creation looked like they were being reversed. Instead of blessing, there was a curse. Mankind's task was to be fruitful and multiply, basically to have a lot of kids, and now childbirth would be painful. Man was to work the earth, but now work would be painful as well, thorns and thistles and sweat. God created man from the dust, but because of sin, man would return to the dust that so it really looks like in this part of the story that sin is unraveling God's good purposes for his world. I've heard the illustration that original sin is like, is as if I'm carrying a beautiful cake and I just drop it on the floor. I mean, once that happens, who's going to want to eat cake that's on dirty ground, broken into pieces? How can humanity restore a cake like that? Sin also stains what it means to be an image bearer of God. We were like beautiful portraits hanging in an art gallery that have been spray painted by vandals and knived. We are at the same time masterpieces, but also deeply flawed. So, because of their sin, God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden and out of his presence. And even in the midst of such terrible judgment, terrible darkness, there's glimmering hope. And that's, that's the theme that runs throughout Genesis and all throughout the Bible. The, the times of great judgment, there's tremendous hope. We see in Genesis 3.15, when God gave, uh, doled out punishment to the serpent, his, uh, this punishment also included the promise of a deliverer for all of us. Genesis 3.15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Ye, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So this promise of a, an offspring, a seed, a descendant of Adam and Eve to crush Satan's head, propels forward the book of Genesis and the whole Old Testament. And that's something I want you guys to keep in mind this morning as we look at the rest of Part two of Genesis' story, Genesis' story, 
teaches us that sin expanded among the descendants of Adam and Eve, bringing judgment. But even in judgment, God is at work to accomplish his good purposes. We learn very quickly in Genesis 4 through 11 that sin is a power that seeks to dominate and destroy us. At the beginning of chapter 4, Adam and Eve rejoice because they had a kid. And I, you can only imagine they wonder, you know, one of our descendants will be the promised one, will be the promised deliverer. Is this possibly the promised deliverer? Fortunately, we learned pretty quickly that their son would actually become the world's first murderer. Their corruption spread to him and to all their descendants. Chapter 5 picks up on this. It shares a genealogy of Adam and his descendants. Could the promised one Fortunately, this chapter disappoints as well. One theologian calls chapter 5 the roll call of death. Because as you read his genealogy, you are reminded of sin's curse by the repetitions of, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, for all of Adam's descendants. The curse that spread. And the curse continues to spread as man multiplies on earth. And it forces the conclusion of Genesis 6 5, which says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This grieved the heart of Almighty God. It wasn't his plan for his creation. And he decided to judge the earth and wipe out all of humanity with the global flood. All people. Except for one righteous man, Noah, his family. You probably know how the story goes. Noah built an ark. The rains came, the earth was flooded, Man mankind was wiped out, but God saved Noah and his family and the animals on the ark. And as Noah's coming out of the ark, God blesses him. Just like he blessed Adam in Genesis 1. And he says some familiar words to Noah in Genesis 9 1. He says, Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth. So at this point, the story sure looks like Noah is Adam 2.0. He's getting a second chance to succeed where Adam failed. And a reader reading Genesis who doesn't know the end of the story might think that Noah is the promised one. And I say that because uh, if you look back at Genesis 5.29, Noah's father gave him the name Noah, which means rest. And then shares uh, words that echo the curse and the promise of Genesis 3. That's his reasoning for giving Noah that name. He says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So Noah was supposed to be the deliverer, at least looked for a time, like he might be, but Noah doesn't live up to his name. And the second half of Genesis chapter 9, we see Noah's sin of drunkenness. We see the sins of uh, Noah's son who commits shameful acts against him. The first man, Adam, sinned with the fruit of the tree. And the supposed second Adam, Noah, sinned with the fruit of the vine. Which means even among the good people in the story, sin is wreaking havoc. And they need a deliverer. Moving on to the Genesis story, chapter 10 describes, shares a genealogy of how Noah's family did bear fruit and multiply and expand in the earth. And then chapter 11 
see what the builders say in Genesis 11, 4. They say, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They try to fight against God's purposes from creation of filling the whole earth. And in judgment, God dispersed, uh, dispersed them over the whole earth and also uh, confused their languages. So God disrupted their plans. That means for us, friends, we can't fight against God. We can't fight against His purposes in the world. He's going to prevail no matter what. And we will face judgment if we try. So we've made it through 11 chapters of the Genesis story. And I'm going to pause right here and do something that maybe you were taught not to do in school. Let's flip to the end of the story and see how it ends. Uh, when we're reading the Bible, sometimes it's helpful to see how a book begins and ends so you can uh, trace the trajectory throughout the book. So turn to Genesis 50 with me. We'll look at how the book of Genesis ends. Now we just fast forward through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the story of Joseph. Right now we're really looking at the climax of the book, the, what the whole book is leading towards. Um, and, it, and it's really interesting to think about Joseph because if you think about the book of Genesis, Genesis is 50 chapters long. And there are two chapters on creation, but there are 13 chapters on Joseph. And that's no accident. As we look through his life and, and see where the book of Genesis is driving, we'll see what God intends for them. Uh, if you remember the story of Joseph, Joseph goes, goes through tremendous pain. He is sold into slavery by his own brothers. He's falsely accused and thrown into jail for years. And yet, God is with him. Even despite all that hardship, all that suffering, because of other people's sin, God is with Joseph and blesses him. And soon Joseph finds himself second in command in the mighty nation of Egypt. And uh, you remember the story, a great famine comes, but Joseph knew that it was coming and prepared food uh, to save the whole world. And so at the end of the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph has been reunited with his brothers, and he's sharing with them his heart. And I think this is a key verse in all of Genesis. Genesis 50, 20 says to his brothers who sold him into slavery, ruined his life, he said, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive. So in Genesis 1, after creation, God evaluated his work, and he called it good. Here in Genesis 50, after terrible sin distorts his creation and seemingly his purposes for the world, God evaluates his work interacting with sinful humanity, calls it good. This leads us to the, the main idea of Genesis, the melody that repeats throughout the book of Genesis, which is that in spite of great evil, the Creator God will keep his promises to us and will accomplish his good and redemptive purposes for the world. In spite of great evil, the Creator God will keep His promises to us and accomplish His good and redemptive purposes for the world. 
let's jump back to Genesis 12 through 50 and see how the rest of the story unfolds. Genesis 12 through 50 teaches that sin will not have a final word because God has an unstoppable plan to restore blessing and do good. So if you remember at the end of Genesis 11, we know that the post-flood and post-babble world was growing in population but extremely sinful, cut off from God's blessing. But God wanted to restore blessing on earth, and his plan to do that was through one man. It's interesting to, to see the difference between Genesis 11 and 12, because Genesis 1 through 11 is all about things on a global scale. God created the entire world. God brought uh, a global flood over the entire world. Uh, God disperses those in battle throughout the face of the entire earth. But now God zooms into one guy, his family, the rest of the book of Genesis. That man is Abraham, or as he later be called, Abraham. And in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God shared the history-shaping promise of Abraham. He says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God makes a covenant with Abraham here that he would expand a bit in Genesis 15 and 17. But there, there are four main strands to this covenant. One of them is descendants. God promises that he would be a great nation. As countless as, with descendants as countless as the sand on the seashore and as the stars in the sky. God also promises land. It's the promised land. You hear about much of the rest of the Old Testament. God promises blessing. Not only would Abraham and his family be blessed, but through them, God would bless everyone or every nation in the entire earth. God also promises protection. God says, He who dishonors you. These are some pretty amazing promises. But there's only one problem. Abraham was about 75 years old when he received his promise, and he didn't have any kids. His wife was just a little bit younger than him, so how are they going to have a kid? How is God going to keep his promises? I'll admit that when I was a kid, I didn't really think a whole lot of Abraham. I've heard a lot of Bible stories at church, and I thought guys like Moses or Elijah who did a lot of miracles, they were pretty cool. But Abraham, he's kind of a, a dusty old guy in the desert. But as I've gotten older, as I've matured, I've realized just how amazing and miraculous the faith of Abraham is. God called Abraham to leave his family, to leave his country, to leave his culture. And in response to God's promises to him, not only does Abraham do all that, he leaves all those things. It says in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham believed God's promises. But it wasn't always easy to remember the story. Abraham had to wait about 25 years for the promise of a child to be fulfilled. Have you ever had to wait on a promise of God for years? 
not easy. And at one point, Abraham tries to force God's hand by uh, by going to this uh, fertile servant woman, Hagar, and trying to have a child, Ishmael. But that wasn't God's plan. There are a few other falters in uh, Abraham's faith as well. In Genesis 12, Abraham tells Pharaoh that Sarah, his wife, is actually his sister. This leads the Pharaoh to take Sarah to burn himself because she's a very beautiful woman. And it may not seem apparent why, why this is such an issue, but if God promised Abraham descendants, and he's just giving away his life, how was that going to work, right? And it's interesting, if you look at the story, Abraham doesn't remedy the situation, but God does. God sends a plague on Egypt that doesn't relent until Pharaoh returns Sarah. And almost an identical thing happens in Genesis 20 in a different place with a different king. Another king takes Abraham's wife because he thinks it's Abraham's sister. And God appears to the king in a dream that he needs to return to Sarah. God would not let his redemptive purposes be derailed. Uh, and later he did keep his promises of, of a descendant, his promise of a descendant in Isaac. Even though it took about 25 years. I can only imagine the joy Abraham and Sarah would have had holding baby Isaac. He waited 25 years. Abraham was about 100. Sarah was in her 90s. That's a miracle for having a child, right? And holding this visible, tangible evidence that God keeps his promises, even though it can be hard sometimes to wait for. And as, as joyful as that was, I can only imagine that years later, when God told Abraham to take this promised child and put him on an altar and kill him, I can only imagine that that was equally distressing. You remember that story of Genesis 22. God tests Abraham, Abraham's faith, um, and it's, it's amazing to see what Abraham does. Abraham is willing to give up this promised child, even though it looks like God is contradicting himself. The last moment God buys the ram, and Abraham sacrifices the ram and spares his son. As I was preparing this message, I, I was wondering, you know, how did Abraham do that? How did he have that kind of faith to put up his only son? And I was relieved to find that the Bible actually has an answer. In Hebrews, 9, or Hebrews 11, verse 19, it tells us that Abraham believed God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. That's how he did that. Abraham knew that God doesn't renege on his promises, and he knows that we can trust him no matter what, even when the situation seems possible. Don't you want faith like Abraham? I do. After the story of Abraham, God reiterates his promises to Isaac. And in Genesis 26-24, he tells Isaac, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you. And multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Isaac would also pass the baton of blessing in his son Jacob. Uh, Jacob, who would later have his name changed to Israel. Jacob's name literally meant cheater. And he lives up to his name. He cheats his brother out of his birthright. He cheats his brother out of his father's blessing. Esau should have gotten the blessing. Firstborn of Jacob cheated him out of it. And in spite of all of Jacob's trickery and his sin, God 
God reiterates his promises to Jacob here too in Genesis 28, 13, and 14. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And the rest of the book of Genesis focuses on Jacob or Israel, his 12 sons, and really centers on the life and suffering of Joseph. So if you remember the story, I touched on it a little bit earlier, Joseph's brothers are really bad news. I mean, like, front page of the paper, major headline, bad news. Uh, in Genesis 34, two of Joseph's brothers, Simeon and Levi, murdered an entire town, exacting revenge for the rape of their sister. In Genesis 35, Reuben slept with his father's concubine. In Genesis 37, after hearing of a dream that Joseph had that his brothers had bowed back to him, he was the favorite, I didn't rest well with his brothers, they sold him into slavery. In Genesis 38, Judah impregnates his daughter law because she was disguised as a prostitute. That's pretty messed up. And this is, this is the family through which God is going to bless the entire world. How is that going to work? He wasn't So after being sold into slavery, Joseph found himself in Egypt, and he was a servant in the house of Potiphar to a very powerful man. Genesis 39 says that God was with Joseph and caused all that he was doing to be blessed and to succeed. So things appear to be going well for Joseph at this point. Maybe if you're reading this book for the first time, you think, you know, maybe God will fulfill his promises and blessing the nation right now for Joseph. But then Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of trying to rape her and he's thrown in prison with false accusation. How do you like that? Just when things start to go, seem to go well for a little bit, that happens. But it's interesting, a repetition in this portion of Joseph's life is that even in prison, God is with Joseph. God is blessing Joseph. God even causes Joseph to be a blessing to others in prison. And Joseph's time in prison wasn't wasted. Prison was a place that God ordained he would interpret the dream of Pharaoh's cupbearer. And a couple years later, after the cupbearer is released and again in the service of Pharaoh, Pharaoh has a dream and needs interpretation. Cupbearer tells Pharaoh that there's this great Hebrew guy in jail. He, he can interpret dreams, so go grab him. So Joseph interprets the dream of Pharaoh, tells him that the dream predicted a great famine that would come on the land. It would be seven years of prosperity and seven years of famine, and they need to store up provisions for the famine. Pharaoh was so blessed and uh, excited to hear what this dream meant. He promoted Joseph, took him out of prison made him his right-hand man in all of Egypt, cast him with storing up provisions for all Egypt. And it's really fascinating what happens next. Because the family did hit just as the dream predicted. And it even hit Joseph's family back hundreds or thousands of miles away. They had, they had no option for food. It was either starve, stay there, or go to Egypt where they heard there was food. As they come to Egypt, who is the one they approach for food? Their long lost brother. 
slavery choice. What an amazing story. And, and the way it all worked is that Joseph was able to provide food for them. Uh, he was able to not only save the lives of his brothers and his family, but also that whole region, that whole known world at the time. Uh, God did amazing things. And there are a few lines of dialogue here in, in Genesis 45 and 50 where Joseph tells his brother exactly why things happened the way they did. Chapter 45, he said to his brothers, God sent me before you to preserve life. He also said, it was not you who sent me here, but God. As I read earlier, Genesis 50, 20, a key verse in the whole book, you meant it for evil, but God Even when all seems 
loss. Israel needed the message of Genesis as they wandered in the desert. They had seen God's salvation rescuing them from Egypt, but they didn't know what he was doing. They thought maybe God was abandoning them in the desert. That's why it was so easy to turn to other gods. But Genesis is a call for them to remember where they came from, to remember God's promises, to remember that he is faithful. I remember in 2016, right after my mom went to be with the Lord, she died without cancer. Uh, we had one of our pastors come visit our home, and I'll never forget what he told us. He said, it's hard to see why all this happened right now, but you will be able to rejoice at the wisdom and sovereignty of God for all of eternity and say, Lord, you knew what you were doing all along. You guys realize that we'll be able to say that in heaven for everything that we go through? Even when our faith is weak, God is strong. He is faithful. Before I move on to the next application, I just want to quickly address those here who may not believe in Jesus Christ. Maybe life is really hard for you. Maybe you're hurt, or maybe you've done hurting to other people you love. Know that in Jesus Christ and only in Jesus Christ, is there hope for both today and for eternity? Jesus Christ offers complete forgiveness, complete reconciliation with the God that you sinned against. And all the wonderful things I have just mentioned in this message are only available to those who trust in Jesus Christ. So trust in Him today. He has a gift for you. So reach out and take it by faith. Second application this morning, is to find your joy in God and not your circumstances. Maybe you resonated with the portion of the story when Joseph was in prison. Maybe you wake up every day and you feel like God has abandoned you. And it's, it's really easy to live a life where your emotions and your hope hinges on your circumstances instead of God and his promises. But just like Joseph, we don't know the picture God has painted in our lives. Joseph spent at least two years in prison, not knowing if he'd ever get out. Our eyes need to be fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith and not on our circumstances, especially during suffering. God should be our source of greatest joy. Then lastly, the message of Genesis can help us forgive those who have wronged us. When you realize that God can use evil for good, for his redemptive purposes, we can let go of the goodness and the anger that we often cling to uh, when we think of those who have hurt us. Maybe you struggle with forgiveness. Maybe you struggle with getting over things that have happened to you in the past. Maybe someone like Joseph has literally ruined your life with how they've treated you. Know that Jesus Christ offers you peace and reconciliation today. You can forgive as Christ has forgiven you. It's not easy. It wasn't easy for Joseph. But forgiveness is possible. And it will happen when we remember that in spite of great evil, the Creator God will keep His promises to us and accomplish His good and redemptive purposes.
Father, seeing your power, your faithfulness in history is amazing. Lord, we want to live by faith. We want to live as worshipers. We want to be your hands of blessing for the world that is broken by sin and the world that so desperately needs Jesus Christ. Lord, we hope your truth to shape our hearts toward a greater faith in you and fear of you, for a greater hatred of sin, to a greater persevering attitude to trial, and a greater anticipation of the glories that await us for all of eternity. We ask this in Jesus' name.